the more you think about it, the more you realize that we are actually anti-fragile humans, right? When you lift weights, you don't get weaker, you get stronger. And you can think about that psychologically and personally and, and professionally. The more struggle you have, you go, oh, that was tough, but you've learned so much. And you build up those psychological fibers, so to speak. And it's really important. Don't shy away from challenges. They will build a, a stronger individual mentally. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Lubatilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Paul Atherton. Paul is an ex-Wall Street advisor on a mission to help people win back their financial power, wealth and security. Paul graduated with an engineering degree with honours in South Australia. Then after a brief stint in the steel industry, Paul made a decision at the age of 22, which changed his life in ways he couldn't have predicted. He applied for and received a scholarship to study in Boston in the United States, where he studied mathematics, statistics and engineering. He then found himself on the trading floor of a large investment bank on Wall Street, New York. Paul worked for 25 years on Wall Street. His last position was as a senior managing director of one of Wall Street's largest firms, reporting directly to the CFO and CEO. Paul returned to Adelaide in 2016 with his wife Angela, a New Yorker, to raise his two boys here. Since returning to Australia, Paul has been shocked at the standard of advice often dished out to regular people while the wealthy profit from the knowledge of the key players at the heart of global finance. This prompted his decision to qualify as a financial advisor so that he could make his knowledge accessible to everyone. The principles of risk, reward and return remain the same whoever you are, wherever you live, or whether you have $10 million or $1,000 to invest. So stay tuned if you'd like to learn more about how lessons from the world of finance can help you thrive in the complexity of everyday life. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Now, you've led a very interesting life and spent quite a number of years working in the hurly-burly of the finance world. Would you like to share with our listeners a little bit about what it's like working on Wall Street? Oh, thanks, Suzanne. I never think about it as hurly-burly. It's it's funny, one goes through life and thinks it's just rather humdrum and mundane, but then um, people put all these sort of labels on it, don't they? And uh, maybe it's best to give you some context so you can understand my sort of journey in Wall Street and what it, what it was like. So I didn't intend to go to Wall Street. I ended up there because I met a, a New Yorker in my travels. I wasn't traveling. I was being educated, <laughs> doing my advanced uh, degree in mathematics, statistics, and some engineering work mixed in. I arrived in New York because of my I met my lovely wife while I was studying in Boston, Massachusetts. And she was 
she was very keen on moving to, to or keeping at New York. She was very parochial then. And I didn't know it, but Wall Street was hoovering up mathematicians and I sort of walked into the front door and was uh, very, very welcomed because, yeah, there was a real growing need for people with advanced complex quantitative degrees like mathematics or physics, engineers, and uh, because the world of Wall Street was getting more complex, derivatives were really coming to the fore in the early 90s um, and other complex products and things like mortgage-backed securities and then collateral debt obligations and structured notes eventually into the sort of uh, default notes and that sort of brought the world to its knees in 2008 for the global financial crisis. So I walked in and I've got to say, I had a, my career there was enormously fun. I enjoyed it immensely. It was a very rewarding career. It really leveraged my skills. I think I had two major skills. I've, of course, I was a mathematician and I was able to understand these complex products quite well. But the other skill I had is I could speak in whole sentences. So <laughs> I was able to interact very well with what you might describe as senior management and describe these complex products in an understandable form and, and then really explain the risks. The early part of my career was on the trading floor, um, working uh, on an emerging markets desk. But I gravitated more into eventually into risk management and valuation complex valuations and yeah it was you know i think the i often ask is it as intense as they portray on uh, the movies and I, my answer is usually no it's not it's far more intense than one you see in the movies <laughs> it doesn't even remotely capture it so and of course that's very exciting that's the flip side to the intensity it's very exciting and you, you, you can kind of see that the uh, what's happening on Wall Street sort of reverberates throughout the world. And it's very, very interesting, fascinating, and just, you know, very rewarding to be part of that, mm. part of that sort of a story as it unfolds. You know, when, for example, when the GFC unfolded, we were right dead center as it was happening. And I just reflecting on some of the other conversations I've been having with people, Paul, and some of their advice is when things get really complex, slow down. However, in that sort of an environment, there's some real risks with slowing down too much, isn't there? Yeah, I think what you learn is, and perhaps this is the benefit of being an engineer, is you're right, but we learn it in a different way. So, we, of course, decisions and have to be made fast, but you have to be able to make take again, complex information and make pretty good adjustments. So a pretty good adjustment made quickly is better than a really good adjustment made late. And so you learn sort of these rules of thumbs and these heuristics and way to think about the complex world. Mm. And there's no way to know it to its last nth degree until probably it's after the fact. That's not going to help you. So you you learn these the sort of again rules of thumb heuristics that uh, enable you to get through these things, and you notice them. You know every pattern is broken, but you notice sort of those patterns that there, and it puts off those warning signals, and uh, that's very important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, 
What are some of the sort of complex challenges that you would need to manage in that type of environment? Right. Well, you know, I, I would suggest there's probably two ways of looking at the complexity. There's the complexity of the environment which we on Wall Street that we were producing these complex products, these complex financial instruments. And how do we value it and how do we understand the risk? And we have to understand the risk not just from our perspective as the bank, but as the client's perspective as well. So despite the reputation, we had a very clear ethical line between what we would describe as Wall Street, a Wall Street firm, and those that are outside of Wall Street, maybe retail or you would think of a, even fund managers were considered outside the sort of the line of Wall Street. And what that meant was that they had to be treated carefully. There was really unethical. There was a pretty bright line that you should not cross and that they had to be treated very ethically. I think part of the problem with the GFC is that line was crossed somewhat. But nevertheless, the, and to be able to understand that is you had to understand the risk and you had to understand the complexities and you had to understand what the nature of the products that you were building and and selling, placing into the market. And of course, not to belabor the GFC, but that was a, just a pure example of not understanding the, the longer-term ramifications or maybe some understanding it, but not not quite wording it or getting the, the word out there. Mm-hmm. So that's internally. Externally, there are risks, the complexities of the world and the global market and the global landscape, and that's from a, a global I would say a financial, global financial market perspective, you know, the flows of funds around the world and where they're going and, and the states of various economies around the world and, it's, and that complex interaction and how that will impact companies and therefore balance sheets and therefore earnings and therefore the stock market and therefore, you know, all of these things. So there were layers and layers of, of those interactions. And the other thing is, is one's got to be wary of the geopolitical events and these things mm. pop up out of nowhere, sort of in a modern day example is Putin and Ukraine. This is, you know, arguably in retrospect, very, very, uh, you know, one could have in retrospect sort of, yeah, okay, that was probably obvious, but not at the time. So these things happen. And managing that complexity, I think is, is, really what we do. I think one thing Wall Street does enormously well is understand that, that the, the world is very complex, so complex, in fact, that you cannot predict it. Although, of course, there's so many attempts to do so. Really, I think the onus is on about being internally robust or in a position that you can take the, the vicissitudes of the market. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, what are some of the lessons from that complex world of finance that people can generally pick up and apply in what they do every day? Oh, I think this is really, this is a great question, Suzanne. Uh, there are an enormous amount of lessons that I've mapped from the financial world into my uh, life. I think, perhaps not unsurprisingly, we all do that. When they say a carpenter, everything's a hammer. So I but the thing with financial markets, again, it's so intense and it's so quick and you, you sort of get multi-generations in, you know, within a year, within two years. And it just is pressure tests. If you can think of uh, 
the evolution in a very, very t- short time period. That means uh, there's an awful lot of things one can one can work from uh, sort of the lessons learned from the market into everyday life, and and a few of them, for example. Now, this was popularized by Nassim Taleb. It's surprisingly common language in the uh, financial world is to have what we might describe as convex payoffs. And what that means is that when things are good, they go good faster. When things are bad, they go bad slower. And the way to describe this in the real world, there's no such really word for it. And so Nassim Taleb came up with the word with anti-fragile. So if you Mm -hmm. picture this, you've got a coffee cup on the edge of a table. If you knock it off the table, it breaks. It is fragile. Now, most people, when you ask, what's the opposite of that? They would say, well, you knock it off and it, it doesn't break. But that actually is not the opposite. That actually only gets you halfway. What you want something is that gets stronger with that volatility or that fragility or that, that shock. So you knock it off the your you know China cup and you find it's actually got stronger when it's when you pick it up. It didn't break. It wasn't just that it didn't break, it actually got stronger. So that's anti-fragility. And it turns out in finance we do this all the time. It's these convex payoffs. But in life you can do it and it's really important to do. You've got to build this anti-fragility into yourselves. And mm-hmm. I think, by the way, a lot of the modern day issues we're facing in a modern world is we're not building enough robust or anti-fragile into our um, systems and into our schools and into our individuals. But but you can do it. How can people do that, Paul? So, you know, things like keeping yourself physically healthy, because one can't predict the future, but Keep yourself in a great physical shape. Financially, you could think of things like cash in the bank. You're talking about things that you personally are able to face the world in a in a way that builds a stronger individual. You know, this old philosophy of stoicism is very much anti-fragile. So it's about one's own personal nature and interaction with life, with natural world. Heard that described before as well about the way in which you show up to different situations. So when something is a tough situation, the way that you think about that going into it can have such a huge impact if you see it as this is going to be hard, this is going to be terrible, I'm not going to enjoy this. That's really the fragile approach. Whereas if you go in and go, all right, this is going to be tough, but wow, am I going to learn a lot as I go through this? Yeah, Totally. And the more you think about it, Suzanne, the more you realize that we are actually anti-fragile humans, right? You know, when you lift weights, you don't get weaker, you get stronger. And you can think about that psychologically and and personally and, and professionally. The more struggle you have, you go, oh, that was tough, but you've learned so much. And you build up those psychological, you know, fibers, so to speak. And it's really important. Don't shy away from from challenges. They will build a a stronger individual mentally. Sorry, I'm just laughing because you're making me feel better because I'm feeling a bit shattered this week. Yes. And I had training on this morning and I could have just thought, I am just too tired, I'm not going, which would have been the fragile response. Or I went, okay, I'm going. And I, you actually get that burst of energy 
from actually having gone through totally being pushed. Yeah. You do totally do. You become changed. And, you know, it's about leaning into that. I think just, uh, and again, uh, I don't want to make too many societal comments, but I think a lot of the ills that we face are about us not leaning in, about about shying away or protecting, you know, and that's an instinct that we have to protect our children and protect people from, you know, the, the difficulties, but you're just making them fragile. And uh, you don't want a fragile society. No. So, no. so I think humans, I think society, inherently anti-fragile, and we should lean into that. And I've been doing it. I look at it to everything I do, you know. So, and sometimes, just like you, I think, why am I doing this to myself? But <laughs> you know, ultimately, it builds a better, better individual. Yes. Better family. Yeah. Better society. Any other? Oh, massive. So I, I could go for the list. One of them again is. You know, I, I think about the way I deal in life. It's just, I'm just always 100% honest. And, you know, there was a, a sort of a, you may have heard, if you ever heard of a rogue trader that got themselves into trouble, it's always because they buried their mistakes, right? Yes. They put it in the drawer. And this is absolutely, absolutely the, and everybody knows this, the road to death the road to mayhem is to shy away from that so because i'm not talking about honesty as in i will answer your questions honesty of course that that's there but what i'm talking is about being honest to yourself and really really not bearing those mistakes and yes i think this is incredibly important and it's difficult too and again i guess going back to the anti-fragile so being honest to yourself is, is just a really fundamental thing. So I was just going to say, Paul, I think that's so important if you're, particularly when you're developing as a leader, mm. when you're under all of this pressure and you feel that you have to get things right and that everyone's watching you, whereas actually it's often when you are supervising or leading someone like that, you're far more impressed when they actually have the courage to actually speak up and say, hey, I think I might have done the wrong thing here. Can we talk about it? And then you actually have the opportunity to support them to actually yeah. do something to course correct. Yeah. Where that's far better than letting it all just mm -hmm. ignoring it and letting it explode. Yeah. Mm. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Mm. So that's again about taking personal accountability and doing that with your team. And the team respects that I've done that, as you know, more than my fair share of my own team. So I think that's really important. I would say the, the, the third market lesson that I map into my everyday life is zigging when other people are zagging. So <laughs> that's it. I become inherently uncomfortable when I see sort of crowd movement in one direction. If it becomes known that this is going one direction. And look, that doesn't mean that, that it's wrong. I'm just saying that, sorry, that the crowd is wrong. I'm just saying whenever I see it, I get very uncomfortable. To me, that means you're probably actually being more conscious of what you're probing and sensing and trying to understand about what's actually going on around this rather than just going, isn't that great? Yes. I Well, I like to think so. But again, one, I'm so reflexive with it that I have to really think this through because my reflexivity is that when I see the market going under, it's wrong, you know, and the, uh, it's so often the case 
and you can really lose your shirt if you're going if you aren't zigging when others are zagging. So it's really important. It's a surviving thing. It's a survival attribute for me. And it doesn't have to be in your everyday life, clearly, but but it's something to keep an eye out. Just watch where the masses are going. And I tell you what, nine times out of ten, the masses are wrong. They move, mm-hmm. of course, and then decide that they never thought that way or behaved that way in the past. But if you want to be ahead of the crowd, zig when everyone else is zagging. So I think that's a really important lesson. And if I say that again on Wall Street, everybody knows what I'm talking about. And another thing is one thing that you notice when you're working in the market is it's often better to remove things than it is to add things. So if you're in a little bit of trouble in the market, often it's good to take things off the table than it is to put more in. Yet I think I see so much advice going around and it's always adding to people's lives and it drives me balmy. You've never... And again, my my advice is at the end of the year is my New Year's resolution is always to stop something. Whereas, you know, you're always adding answers. Everybody, the advice is to add, I will now do more. It's like as if <laughs> it's if the whole year we've we've had no, you know, all this spare time, which is clearly not true. We're desperately busy, all of us, aren't we? So why all of a sudden in the new year do you think you can carve out this extra time? So I highly recommend, and I tell this to everyone that will, will remotely listen to me. Oh, you told it to me, and do you know? Yes, I actually went and acted on it. I went. You made me really go and think and sit down and look at my diary and think about yeah, what are all of the things that I'm doing? And I actually pulled away oh, from great. a bunch of things, mm-hmm. and it's actually enabled me to focus on other more important things oh. by doing that. Yeah, it's very powerful, mm. and you get to the end of the end now. That doesn't mean that, you know, you'll just collect things. People that are very curious and people that are very active and people that have just got that sort of way will collect things during the year. But end of the year is a great time to do a bit of housekeeping. But I say nothing improves somebody's social life more than removing a toxic person. (laughs) You know, and so I would highly recommend that. But that's, again, a really good map. The other thing is, I kind of think about this and I think about it, it may not be uh, something that you impact on every day, but it gives a good philosophical way to think about things. And that is, like my first comment on anti-fragility was uh, popularized by Nassim Taleb. It is a mathematical formula. I do remember reading it a long time ago by a physicist, but I think Nassim refined it a little bit. And essentially the saying goes, it's Lindy, the history on the Lindy effect was because there was a cheesecake uh, deli, a, a New York deli near uh, that served average cheesecakes called, I think it was called Lindy. And all of the Broadway actors and, you know, everybody involved in Broadway would spill out and they'd go have a coffee and a cheesecake. And they would talk about what, whether it was going to survive, whether they'd have a job. And they noticed it was the Lindy effect was the longer a Broadway show survived, the more likely it would continue to survive. And this is actually more counterintuitive than you think. So the answer is, is a 20 year old is actually more likely. So probably should let me let me make it a more stark contrast. As you age, you're more likely to survive to your next age. A really great example of that is new technology. 
So you go, oh, I've got a new phone. Well, the, well, you know, I don't see iPhones going anywhere, but nobody saw the Nokia phones going anywhere, mm-hmm. right? So the longer, but things that have been around forever, like a chair or a desk or the wheel, are very likely to stay for a long time. But that can really inform your investing philosophy. So I remain quite often very suspicious about new technology, particularly if it's going to replace something that's been around for a long time. So it's a great way to really map a philosophy and a thought process to uh, we're not that different than we were. So an example I I use to people is I describe a, a social gathering and it's you pick up a friend in your car, you drive, you know, you dress in jeans and a t-shirt, so are they. You pick them up in your car, you drive down to a cafe, you drink a coffee, they drink a Coke, and you chat about what's in the news, and you have a burger and uh, French fries. Okay, which decade are we in? So you're probably thinking 2022, this is where we are, but it's equally likely to be 1952. Mm -hmm. So 70 years ago. That means that really shows how persistent things are and how they don't change. But if you ask somebody in the 1950s what we'd be eating, well, they would have said we'd be flying around in, you know, we would be in silver jumpsuits, we'd have robots serving us, and we would fly around in cars. Of course, none of that's happened. Isn't George Jetson about due to be born around now? George Jetson is due <laughs> to be born. Of course, it's, none of that's happened. We're, we're extremely similar to the way we were, you know, not that long ago. And that, that will remain the case. So when you're really thinking about the systems that you're operating in, it's thinking about what are those things that are really slow to change. So is there... Aesthetics might change, correct? but their essential correct. nature is the same. So I do this a lot with communication, Suzanne. So I, when I'm working with clients and customers, it's very tempting to throw people down sales funnels and use new fancy technologies to book people in. Very often I don't do it. I just, I'm on the phone and I talk to somebody. Mm which I've been told many a times an awful thing to do. Not awful as in it's bad. It's just there are better ways to do it. But I keep with my Lindy and I say this is what was done in 1950, so I'll do it today. Well, I'm told it's really bad to leave voicemails, but I can't help it. It's a habit I find hard to break. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and look, and styles of communication change. I mean, texting versus talking, but that's fine. But don't forget where... What, uh, you know, just keep that in mind as my um, way of thinking. How was it done a long time ago? And there's reasons reasons for it. Another idea is that look for old books. Mm-hmm. It's much better to have a book and read it on philosophy or the way of being or, or anything that's 100, 200 years old than it is just a year old. If you've read something, I read a uh, sort of a... a what was would have been at the time a 1980s self-help book. Mm-hmm. And I read, I, I just literally couldn't read it. I, I got three or four pages through it. And it was absurd. It was absurd. And it looks, it was embarrassing. And uh, it's because it was all modern. It was pitched at a 1980s sort of what was considered to be trendy. So read old books. 
It's all right. I like the classics. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you yeah. only have to look at in popular culture how those classics keep repeating. They keep coming. I mean, back. a lot of stories keep going back to. So it's really about looking for what's enduring. Enduring. Look for what's enduring. Absolutely. Yeah. I always say, you know, this is really listen to your grandmother. Honestly, mm. it's really that's where the wisdom is. So don't forget that. <laughs> so Paul, <laughs> what does thriving and complexity mean to you? Well, for me, I perhaps this has been somewhat revealed during our conversation. I think it's about being as an, it's all about how I build a more sustainable individual for myself and my my family and my close friends and social networks. It's about having an understanding that we cannot control the outside environment. We do not know what's going to happen next. You know, most of a, a our advances in civilization have happened by purely by accident. So my approach is about being just very open, very honest, and really being sort of that anti-fragile individual that can take the sort of the random uh, unsuspecting positives too, not just the negatives. Mm -hmm. Of course, we, we do get those body blows, don't we, that come out of nowhere, but do you know what? If you open to things and you keep your eye out, you can say, really, we get a lot of opportunities. I said, there was an old trader, a friend of mine, he says, you'll get two of them a year. Mm -hmm. Two golden opportunities every year. That's what his philosophy was. And he says, but everyone misses them because they're not open to it. Yeah. So just keep your eye out to those opportunities and you'll be fine. You just don't know. Your best friend might, you know, it's wonderful person that you've ever met might be just around the corner. The most influential person that's going to change the direction of your life might be just around the corner. Mm. Keep yourself open to it. And uh, and if you're like we are now, and you, Suzanne, if you're trimming at the end of the year, that's fine. You can be open. Yeah. So I like to think that way. And, and, and it makes, for me, life a bit of an adventure. I think, you know, and Steve Jobs said this, if he and I'm going to paraphrase, nowhere near as well as him, but if he looked around and he wasn't excited about what he was doing, he would like to change it. And I like to have a life that's the same. I want to look around and go, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm enjoying getting up in the morning and what the day brings to me. Yeah. And that's not just, you know, the work that comes my way. It's the clients I have to do, you know, I'm dealing with, and I, you know, mm. just... Just be open for that. And it, it makes all the difference in life, I think. Now, I've just been struck by we've been talking about the Lindy effect mm. and what endures. And and then I'm thinking about what I know about you mm. and the business that you, you're building and how you've come off Wall Street and now you're looking to completely disrupt the way in which financial services is provided in Australia. Do you want to tell people a little bit more about that because I think it's really interesting about there are certain aspects of what you're doing mm. that will endure, mm. but it's all the packaging and how it's done that you're really looking to change so you're getting better outcomes for people. Yeah, I, I, um, I don't, and just to give the audience a little bit of an understanding, I, um, I made a, a good honest attempt to uh, retire. <laughs> <laughs> And it was lovely. So I, I returned 
you know, from the big cities to Adelaide, Australia. For those that know it, Adelaide's a smaller city, but it's a wonderful place. And we live very close to the beach and beach on one side and wineries on the other. And it's a lovely standard of living and it's a small community and it's a great place to live. And I had a friend who was, we were at a pub together and he leaned over and he showed me this, uh, his investments and he said, could you look at them? And I said, no. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, come on. And he was very persistent. So I eventually, I looked at them and I went, well, these are terrible. And I started to describe each reason why, and this is the wrong market. And you know, this might've been good 20 years ago. And I went through and and by the end, he said to me, do you think this is bad advice? And I went, wait a minute, you paid for this. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, if you want bad advice, I can do that for free if you like. (laughs) So he clearly was not, he didn't laugh at that. I did. I thought it was hilarious, but on the way home, I thought to myself, well, how do, how do people get advice for finance? Of course, I didn't need advice. I never knew a single person in my um, immediate peer group that needed financial advice. We were the ones who provided it, you know? Yeah. So I booked myself in to see 14 financial advisors and, you know, good for them. They actually let me into their doors because I said I didn't need advice. I just wanted to get an idea how you got into the industry and one back. But bottom line, without being too negative about my newfound career and in industry, I was horrified, <laughs> horrified. So I got by the 14th one, I said, that's it. I got home. I said, I can't take it. I've just, I've got to change the industry. And my wife was cutting vegetables. As I made this huge declaration, she went, <laughs> oh, shit. because she knows when my teeth are into something so i I spent a good couple maybe even close 18 months relaxing and then i was off and so i'm disrupting the industry in the sense that because i am a market expert you might say i don't need to rely on the inputs of any middlemen so we cut all of those out. We cut all middlemen out and we go straight, what I say, go straight to the market. But we also provide very clear advice. We talk about the positions and we provide what I would do to myself. Mm. What would I, what kind of advice would I expect? You know, why is the position gone? Why are we marked? What's the strategy behind it? And, you know, it's been a wonderful second career. It's just been a really wonderful random second career. I find it enormously rewarding. We're changing lives. We've totally changed the direction of people's lives. In this last nine, six, nine months, we've protected people from just, you know, one of the most, you know, difficult downturns. Mm. But we're also now positioning them for the um, upturn. In other words, we're really able to make a positive, significant positive impact on people's lives. But we're also taking a lot of those other philosophies and building those out, which is this total honesty. We build anti-fragility into these portfolios, you know. Mm. Those convexity are, are all about what we do. We we like to zig when people are zagging. We have really great client care and interaction. And turns out these are this is very positive. People like it. So that means I'm very busy. <laughs> <laughs> so in uh, some ways, thriving in complexity is actually around 
it's also partially making a positive difference in the right direction. I think so. Yeah. You know, I just, I want to make a difference, you know, mm. I've earned enough money that I could just have a, a, a lay back on the beach with a, a drink with a, a little umbrella in it if I wanted to, but this is not what life's about for me. Life's about enjoying things and being with wonderful people. And, and that makes this massive difference. That's the spark that keeps me going. And as you say, you know, after ends of brutal weeks of being overworked, <laughs> you go, well, that's how you get that energy to do it. Yeah, yeah. And so, Paul, if you looked back and you could give your 25-year-old self some advice, what would it be? <laughs> Invest in Amazon. <laughs> do you know, I'll tell you a funny story. I had a friend of mine who told me to invest in Amazon at the IPO because he, he knew the, um, the people that were taking it to market. And he said, look, get, get in. And I thought this was going to be like, he was going to tell me this because he just said, I'll tell you about this stock. And I thought, wow, it's going to be this new drug or, a, a, you know, this groundbreaking technology. And he tells me a company is going to be selling books. I was the most disappointed individual in all of New York when he told me that. And uh, of course, I've now watched that go up um, 200,000%, I think, something like that. Uh, so, yeah, I would definitely tell myself to invest in Amazon. But aside from that, I and I think this is a good lesson for people with our type of personalities, particularly is to relax a bit more. <laughs> it all works it out. It all works out. You, you don't know. need to work quite so hard to get there. Maybe, maybe it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's okay. It's all going to work out. Um, other lessons, but I think I learned this very early, and this was a, a phenomenon of being on, around so much money and watching people become extraordinarily wealthy early is I, I started devaluing money and more valuing people. And I think that's not a bad lesson. I probably did learn that at 25 years old. Mm. Money does funny things to people. You need enough to live well. No, I wouldn't argue. But that's the quality. And everybody who is old, go ask a 70 or 80-year-old, do they worry about how much? Do they? No. It's the value of their personal mm -hmm. relations. It's the value of their, they have, you know, the value of their relationship with, what I think Buffett says, right? If those that love you, those that should love you do love you, then you've done well. Mm. And I think that's really important. Those two really go together in some ways, don't they? Because if you remember that, that it's not all about the money and it's not all about making the positive difference, that you still need to leave time to do things that you love with the people that you love. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's all important when we can get, I mean, unfortunately, in many ways, we're so structured to think about money. We're, we're, so, we're so lined up to believe that the value of ourselves as our, as individuals can be perfectly calibrated to the size of our numbers in our, in our bank balance, which is just not true. Mm. It just simply is not true. But we, we, we really just sort of anchored that way. Yeah. So that's probably another lesson I would tell my 25-year-old self. Yeah. But again, I, I think I did learn that lesson very early. And achievement also can really get in the way, can't it, in terms of mm. that feeling of I've achieved something and realising that the achievement in itself isn't everything. 
Yeah, I have a bit of an achievement addiction. That's all right, you and me both. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I know. I love the reward of hitting sort of artificial goals that I've only come up with in my mind. And I do it sort of instinctively, but it's so fleeting, isn't it? Mm. And the reward is just, just ever so vanishingly small in time period. Mm. And then two, you, you just reach another goal, set yourself another goal. But, so it goes uh, back to looking for what's enduring and valuing that. Look for what's enduring. That's your Lindy. Yeah. That's your anti-fragility. Yeah. Yeah. And building the, again, couldn't say it enough about, you know, again, this is, this career, this second lucky, I feel enormously lucky that I had this second career, which has enabled me to develop these wonderful relationships with people. And, mm. and that's just massively enjoyable. So I've, I've been very lucky that way. And Paul, if people remember only one thing from our conversation today, what would you particularly like them to remember? Well, I think the all of those, if I think about the those sort of lessons that we learned from the market that we meant, uh, but that we, we covered, I think those those are really important. But for me, it's about finding your own passion and finding your own voice. It may take a long time, and that's okay. That's okay. I've heard of people that have taken a lifetime to find that, or maybe not a lifetime, but decades, and that's fine too. But it, you'll find it, and if you find it, that's that's where you get your joy. And maybe, maybe it can come in your hobby or your, maybe it's in one of your relationships, maybe it's in the oddest place, but be open for that. And and yeah, that's where you, you find where life really, really is uh, enjoyable. So keep those eyes open for all of those opportunities, those two golden opportunities that are sure to pop up sometime during the year. Sure to follow up. Every major thing I've done in my life, I fire my gut. So when I first went to the States, everybody told me it was the stupidest move ever, but it was. It ended up clearly being very good for me. I, I met my wife, worked on Wall Street, and then I moved from New York to London, and that was a purely gut move, and that was a turned out to be a very good decision. Coming back to Australia again, I had enormous pressure to go back to Wall Street. Lots of money, but, you know, I followed my gut. So if you're really in tuned, and I mean follow your gut, not as a reflexive, you know, fear-based type of thing, but what do you really feel that you want to do? If you do that, things will usually land out pretty well. So really being very self-aware and then thinking about what that means in the environment that you're in and the options that you've got before you. I think so. Mm. Just, and that's about, yeah, I, absolutely. Paul, if our listeners would like to connect with you, how can they actually go about doing that? So we have a, a number of channels for me. I'm online. I, I write blogs and you can reach me. You can ask Paul anything. Fine. And I get these. People do ask me anything, which is nice. But you can find me on www.thatwallstreetguy.com. Now, I can't take credit for coming up for the name. That's the name of my company, That Wall Street Guy. That was a lovely branding lady that came up with that. And it fits very well. So That Wall Street Guy, 
I'm on socials as well. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. And that's, all again, all that Wall Street guy. So come in and join the conversation. It'll be lovely to see this, your audience. And if today is anything to go by, I'm sure people who do choose to do that will find it continues to be a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.